scripture, as you see on your screen uh, for today, is coming from Luke chapter 15. As we continue our new series. And uh, again, this morning, I'll, I'm going to read verses 11 through 32 uh, so that, again, we have context. Uh, for the portion of scripture that we will focus on uh, today. And so beginning at verse 11, scripture says, this is Jesus talking, he says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Today, as we continue our four-part series entitled Relate, uh, as we discuss and review and look at uh, the, 
principles and the elements and opportunities of how we can better relate to ourselves, to God, and to others through the example of the parable in Luke 15, commonly referred to as the prodigal son. Today for part two, we're going to talk about the blessing of a benevolent father. The blessing of a benevolent father. Last Sunday, when we, not last Sunday, two weeks ago, when we began this particular series, we started off by talking about the benefits of brutal honesty and how as human beings seeking to properly relate to one another, the best way that we can begin the process of connecting or reconnecting with one another is by first being willing to be brutally honest with ourselves. In life, there are times where we will make mistakes. Then in life, there are times where we will cause and inflict hurt and pain. In life, there are times where relationships will experience tension and contention. And it is our responsibility, our obligation, but also our opportunity as children of God, as ambassadors of his kingdom, to be the initiators of reconciliation. And the process of restoring relationships only begins with brutal honesty. That's because brutal honesty produces both acknowledgement and alignment. When we are willing to be brutally honest with ourselves, we can then have the language to be able to be brutally honest with others. And in being honest with ourselves and with others, it allows us to acknowledge who we have been and what we have done. Because just like when your check engine light comes on, you cannot fix a problem that you cannot first honestly diagnose. That's why your car has the ability to turn that little light on to let you know that something is wrong. But if your check engine light comes on and you don't know why it's come on and your car is making funny noises, but you decide to put extra air in your tires, that might not solve the problem. We have to be able to acknowledge what part of our lives, what part of our being, what part of our action and activity needs the specific attention and focus to alter our behavior so that we can produce different results in the future. You've heard it said a million times that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. Some of us are still driving with our check engine lights on <laughs> and think if we put enough gas in it, eventually it's going to go off. It's not how this works. We have to be able to acknowledge the area and the point in our lives and in our action and activity that ended up leading to the disconnection in the relationship. And we talked last week about how as human beings, we have to acknowledge that sin is the barrier that separates us from intimate relationship with our heavenly father. 
and that from our story, it was the disobedience of the son and the disregard for his father's life and his house that ended up leading to a separation and division in his relationship with his father. But it wasn't until he acknowledged his behaviors and his actions that the son was able to begin the journey towards reconciliation. What brutal honesty also does is it allows us to come into alignment with the one that we are misaligned with. In a marriage, you cannot find reconciliation and restoration of unity in the relationship until we are able to get back into alignment of goals and purpose and direction and intention so that we can walk together in agreement. Scripture says, how can two walk together unless they agree? And too often in our relationships, we won't do the necessary work of being brutally honest so that we can once again find alignment in how we move forward. If you've been living any amount of time, then you know that everybody that comes into your life is not there to stay forever. And one of the biggest challenges that we can experience in life is trying to hold on to somebody when it's their time to go. When our goals for life no longer align, when our pursuits in life no longer align, when our moral standards for life no longer align, but we appreciate and value the relationship, so we try to hold on to it, even though we are no longer walking in agreement. And it creates and causes tension and frustration in our lives and in our relationships because we're trying to go together to two different places at the same time. Brutal honesty opens the door and lays the foundation for us to acknowledge where we really are. And then to be able to find alignment in the places where we need to be. This uh, past Wednesday in Bible study, as we're going through, Alicia talked about our summer study series where uh, for those of you that are adults in the church are split into two different classes. And it has given me the opportunity to be able to share with our young people. And we've been going through a series uh, called uh, What Do You Want to Know About God? And we took their questions and out of their questions, we've been formulating lessons that help to answer their questions based on scripture. And as we've been walking through it this past Wednesday, we had the opportunity to talk about, uh, I had them uh, two, two weeks ago, I had them draw a picture of their dream house so that they could understand that when God made the world, he did so intentionally to create a space where we would be able to thrive and succeed. But then this past Wednesday, they had to make a list of the rules for anybody that would come to their house. And let me just say, some of y'all kids are hilarious. And as they were given their rules, I could hear some of your voices in the rules that they were sharing. So Understand that you're doing a good job with helping your children understand what kind of expectations and standards to create for visitors that come to their house one day. Now, some of the rules were intentionally for you all. I'm not going to tell you who, but your, your kids made rules specifically for you when you come to their house. So just be ready one day when they get older and they have their own house and you come over thinking that you're going to get what you want out the refrigerator. It might have worked for them, but apparently it ain't going to work for you, so just be ready. 
But in the process of developing the rules, the reason that we did that is because I wanted them to understand that when they get older and they have their own home, because it is their home, they have the authority to then establish the rules for how other people conduct themselves in the home that they own. The connection and the correlation to their understanding about God is that God as the creator of all things is the only one that has the authority to establish the rules for his domain. That includes both the invisible kingdom of heaven and the very visible universe that we live in. And so if we are going to live in this world in alignment with God's standards and his expectations, we have to be able to align ourselves with the house rules that God has established, which is why it's important for us to be able to begin with brutal honesty, because if we don't begin with brutal honesty, then we will oftentimes be living in disillusionment in relation to where we are uh, measuring up against God's standards and expectations. And can I tell you that it has gotten even harder in the world today? With YouTube University, where people can misunderstand and misinterpret anything and everything that they want to and find an audience and a platform, there is misinformation galore to help us to justify and rationalize why we do the things that we do to make us feel good about the things that God has already said we shouldn't be feeling good about. And so it is even more challenging today and more necessary for us today to be able to be honest with ourselves about who we are and what we've done so that we can then authentically measure ourselves against God's standards. And when we realize that we have offended God, having to embrace that and acknowledge that and admit that, there is more that we must do. In our text today here in Luke 15, Jesus has, of course, been talking about the value of lost things and how even though it is lost and even though it may be one sheep out of a hundred or one coin out of an entire purse full, it is still valuable to the one that owns it. And he does that so that we will understand and appreciate that although there may be over 8 billion people on this world, God still values your life. So that you will know that once you go through the journey and the process that the young boy in the story goes through of going your own way and doing your own thing, when you finally wake up to realize that that is not going to work for you and produce the results that you desire for your life, that there is a very simple process for you to be able to enter back into right and meaningful relationship with your heavenly father. And he does so through this particular parable, telling us about this young, this young son who takes his portion of the inheritance from his father and goes and blows it in a distant land and then ends up finding himself in need. Having been hired out to a pig farmer, now he is making his life feeding pigs and dying of hunger at the same time. How ironic is it that his job would be to feed someone else and he can't even feed himself? And he realizes, come to terms with, 
the dire situation that he is living in and he engages in, as we talked about last week, this moment of brutal honesty with himself, where he is able to acknowledge the fact that even the servants in his father's house don't have to worry about what they're going to eat from day to day. And here he is on his hands and his knees in mud and pig leftovers, feeding them and going hungry himself. And he realizes how bad things have actually gotten. But notice that his situation doesn't immediately change. The only thing that changes in the first part of the text is his heart and his mindset. That's what brutal honesty does for us. It alters our perspective on our own situation to the point to where our heart can find new alignment. And our mind can find new clarity that helps us to then make different decisions. So he's in this horrible situation and he realizes that things are better back home and he devises a plan and says to himself, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, look, dude, I'm sorry. I sinned against heaven. I sinned against you. I know that what I did was so bad. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just make me a servant in your house. Because I can't keep living the way that I'm living. I can't keep doing what I'm doing. I can't keep feeling this hunger day after day after day. I can't keep doing this. And so he realizes the truth of where he is. And he formulates a plan to have a conversation with his father, but notice his situation at that moment still doesn't change. Because to experience restoration in relationship in our lives, both between us and God and between us and ourselves and between us and others, it is not enough to acknowledge our error. It's not enough to formulate the plan of, uh, of apology and to, to think about what's going to be required for restoration, thinking about it is not enough. The internal work is not enough. In addition to all of that stuff, there has to be some action. His situation doesn't change until he takes what's in his brain and in his heart and puts his feet to it. And if we're honest with ourselves, brutally honest with ourselves, a lot of times we know the right things to do, but actually doing it is the hard part. We know the right things to say, but actually saying it is the hard part. We know that we're supposed to forgive people that hurt us, but the forgiveness is the hard part. We know that we're supposed to love everybody, but the loving is the hard part. We know the right things to do, and we oftentimes know the right things to say, but actually doing it is the hard part. But here's the thing, it's in the doing that the fruit comes. 
Verse 20, the scripture says, and he arose and came to his father. He formulated this whole plan, thought about everything that he was going to do, thought about what he should do, what he should say when he gets there, put together a plan that was going to give him some understanding of what his life was going to be like after he went back and apologized. And in verse 20, he actually does it. He gets up from where he is and he begins the long journey back home. There is action required from us. There's a story that's been told a million times, and, and some of you are probably familiar with it, about the man uh, who was uh, living in his home, and the news came on, and storm came up, and they issued a flash flood warning. And the rain began to fall, and the water began to rise, and as the water continued to increase, a fire truck drove by. And the man saw the fire truck going from house to house. And uh, the news reports kept talking about how bad this flood was going to be and the need for people to evacuate. So the man simply prayed that the Lord would save him from the flood. The fire truck went from house to house and eventually it came by his house. Firefighter hopped out and waded through the water to the man's door, knocked on the door and told him to come with him, that he was going to be able to take him to a safe place. And the man said, no, I'm good. The Lord's going to save me. So the fire truck goes on and they continue on their journey. The rain continues to fall and the water continues to rise. So much so that the man's first floor of his house begins to flood. And so he goes up to the second floor and uh, out his window, he's looking at what's going on and a boat comes by. And so now the rescuers are in the boat and they pull up and they see him in the window. They pull up and they tell him to hop out of the window because they're going to be able to take him to a safe place. And the man says, no, the Lord's going to save me. And so the boat leaves and the rain continues to fall and the waters continue to rise so much so that now his second floor is flooded. So he climbs out of his second floor onto his roof and he's there on his roof. And he's looking all around and this is far worse than he ever thought it was going to be. But he's got faith. And then a helicopter comes by. And they get on the microphone and they tell him to grab hold of the ladder so that they can bring him up and take him to a safe place. And the man says, no, the Lord's going to save me. And so the helicopter goes on and leaves and the rain continues to fall and the waters continue to rise. And eventually the man drowns and dies. And when he wakes up in heaven, he looks at the Lord and he says, Lord, why didn't you save me? And the Lord said, I sent you the firefighters and the boat and the helicopter. And for many of us, we have the faith. But it is a matter of combining our faith with the actions that will produce the fruit we're looking for. 
Many of us keep praying for restored relationships and healthy relationships, but the question is, do we have the faith and the feet to do what's necessary in order for those things to be produced? In our scripture, it is the brutal honesty that helps to cut through the rationale uh, of our negative behaviors and helps us to get to a truth that compels us to action. And that's what we got to understand about truth. Truth should cut us in a way that it compels us to behave differently. Again, we referenced it last week in Acts chapter two, when Peter preaches the message on Pentecost that tells the Jews that they had the hand in murdering Jesus, even though they weren't the ones that nailed him to the cross. It cut them so deeply that they asked them, brothers, what shall we do? And when we come face to face with the truth, what always happens is it exposes our gaps and our deficiencies and it should motivate us. It should compel us to want to do something different. In the story, the young man realizes how great of a man his father is and decides that his father's house is better than what he's created for himself. And so he turns his back on that distant country that used to be so alluring and so exciting and so tempting, and he sets his eyes on home. And that's the process for restoring our relationship with our Heavenly Father is being able to be brutally honest with ourselves, to be able to acknowledge that we might not know everything, that we might be smart, but God is smarter, that our way might work some of the times, but we need a way that works all of the time. And that no matter how hard we've been fighting and trying to do it in our own power, what we have will never be enough by ourselves to be able to get to where we're trying to go. When we can acknowledge the fact that no matter how good we are, we will never be good enough for God's standards. Then we can acknowledge our need for help and we can turn away from the way that we've been going and turn our eyes and our attention toward our heavenly father. And what's beautiful about it is that when we are able to turn away from where we've been and from what we've done and from what we've thought and from what we've prioritized and turn our eyes to our heavenly father and begin to pursue what he wants and what he prioritizes and what he desires for our lives and begin walking down that path. What is beautiful is that God does the same thing for us that he does for the, that the father does for the boy in the text. Because notice that the scripture says in verse 20 that he arose and came to his father. He got up from where he was. He turned his attention toward a specific destination. He didn't just turn away from his bad behaviors, but he turned away from his bad behaviors and turned to his father's house. And with clear direction now, he begins his journey down the road. But guess what happens? The scripture says, but while he was still a long way off. Brutal honesty exposes just how far from God we are and how much unlike him we have become. And the distance oftentimes seems insurmountable. 
Anybody ever been there before? Where you've had to be honest with yourself about the presence of sin in your life. You've had to be honest with yourself about the ways that you have fallen, about the ways that you have fallen short, about your imperfections. You had to come face to face with the ugliness of your manipulative decisions and your uh, your intentional errors in life, about how you misused and abused people and things and even yourself. You've had to come face to face with just how unlike God you are. And it feels like you got a long way to go. This is oftentimes why people will use the excuse that they need to clean themselves up before they come to church. Because they are at least able to acknowledge the fact that where they are and how they're living is not in alignment with the standards and the expectations of God. But here's the thing and the beautiful thing that we see in the text. It says very clearly, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him where he was and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. and kissed him. The boy still smelled. Not just like a pig, but like what a pig leaves over. He was still dirty. He couldn't feed himself, you know he couldn't bathe. So imagine how filthy he was. And he was a long way from the father's house in his filth. And the only thing that had changed about him was his heart and his mind. But as far away as he was from the father's house, the father still saw him. And he saw him in the truth of his present condition And even though he was still filthy and even though he was still far away, father knew that his focus was at least in the right place. And that's why we have to embrace the responsibility to be initiators in the reconciliation because God has already done everything that he needs to do in order to have a perfect and intimate and fulfilling relationship with us. But there's action that we have to take. We got to be willing to turn away from the stuff that we've been doing and the life that we've been living and the things that we've been pursuing that haven't been working and turn our eyes back to the father's house and start the journey down the road and here's the beautiful thing you ain't got to get all the way there because while you're on your way your father will see you and have compassion on you and run to you and embrace you and kiss you and remind you of how much you're loved and how valued you are This is Jesus telling this story. And 
It is not just a story for him, but this is truly how Jesus sees us and interacts with us. Because in Matthew chapter 14, remember, the disciples were out in the boat in the middle of the storm and they saw somebody walking on the water. And at first they were scared and they didn't know who it was, but then they realized and recognized that it was Jesus. And Peter called out to him, Jesus, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat. He didn't just think about it anymore. He got out of the boat, engaged in the action to put his feet on the path to moving closer to Jesus. And as he was walking, yeah, he got distracted by what was going on around him, got a little bit fearful, started to doubt a little bit and started to sink in the water. But did you ever read the story for yourself? And realize that even though Peter was still far from Jesus when he began to sink, before he went under, Jesus had come to him, grabbed his hand, picked him up out of what was trying to swallow him, and guided him back to the safe place. And Jesus is waiting on us to make the decision that home is where we want to be. And I know it feels like a long way and I know you feel like you messed up and I know you feel like your rap sheet is too long for God to be able to overlook all of those things. And I know you feel like you got so many mistakes in your past that you don't know how you're going to be able to move past those things and be able to get forward. But God only cares about your focus and what you are pursuing. He's not worried about all of those other things that you did, because if all of those other things had to happen in your life for you to realize that the father's house is where you want to be, then all of those things happen for a reason and a purpose that got you to where you need to be so that you can get to where you go where you're going. They all have value. If we will find the faith to start moving, it's amazing how quickly God will close the distance. There's action required in the restoration of these relationships. But in verses, the second half of verse 20 and 21, we see that that also leads to agreement on where we are and who our father is. In the second part of verse 20, of course, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, we got the insight into the plan that the son had for what he was going to do when he got back to talk to his father. And his father comes running to meet him embraces him, kisses him, gives him love, and the son immediately goes forward to implement his plan and makes the declaration that he had offended his father. A couple of months ago, actually back in May, uh, former President Barack Obama was doing an interview with Nate Burleson from CBS about the um, announcement of the four model communities associated with the My Brother's Keeper initiative that's a part of the Obama Foundation. And in that conversation, President Obama starts talking about 
one of the bigger challenges of our day. And he talks about the fact that we live in a day and time where people aren't even willing to acknowledge the facts. He, 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 in the interview, he talks about how, you know, years ago, there used to only be three news stations, CBS, ABC, NBC. <clears throat> Those were the primary locations that people could go in order to get the news. And those news stations were therefore required to report the news in a balanced way because there was significant competition because the field was so small. He then goes on to say that if something happened during that time that we might disagree on how to solve it, but we could at least agree on the fact that there's an issue. But in the times that we live today, he calls it the splintering of the media, where now you have literally hundreds of news stations who report the news however they want to without any accountability. And so now when you sit down to try to have a conversation with somebody about a very clear and very real issue, they'll respond that it didn't happen or that they don't believe that. Literally every time there is a national tragedy in our country today, there's a segment of people that will say that it's all Fake news <laughs> that is not real. And if you can't get people to at least agree on the reality of events, then how in the world are we going to work together to be able to prevent future situations like that from happening again? And so he says we can't even have meaningful conversations anymore because we can't even agree upon what it is we're talking about. And so he asked the question, how do we return to a common conversation with the facts? We have to ask that same question for ourselves in our relationship with God. We live in a world today where people believe anything and everything that they want to believe where once the things and the thought processes in the schools of thought that were ostracized for their incompleteness and their irrationality, now people embrace them and build their lives around them. And if we're not careful, we will cherry pick bits and pieces from other belief systems to try to construct our own belief system that helps us to be comfortable in what we do. And that's why the standard can't come from us. It has to come from God. Why the expectation for how you live your life and how you walk in alignment with God, it can't come from Jonathan. It's got to come from the word of God. Because in order for us to walk in agreement, for us to be in with God, we've got to agree upon 
how we got here, what's needed to fix it, and how we move forward from this place. The conviction and the shame that the son felt for his actions compelled him to not only turn his back on his way and turn to the father, but it would not allow him to receive the embrace of the father in silence. He could have, as the father was embracing him, he could have just kept his mouth closed. But it was important for him and for the relationship that his father know that he understood what he had done. We ought to be quick to forgive. But you can't forgive somebody for something that they won't acknowledge that they've done. Because you cannot seek forgiveness for something other than what it was that caused the harm and the, uh, the, the separation in the first place. If I slap you in the face and then I apologize for parking in the wrong parking space, what are you going to forgive me for? You can't forgive me for slapping you in the face if I requested an apology, if I requested forgiveness for parking in your parking space. But in order for forgiveness to be given, there must be agreement on where forgiveness is needed. And that's why we start with brutal honesty, why this begins the process, because when we begin with the brutal honesty, it gives us everything, that, everything else that we need for the rest of the conversation to be able to be clear with the father so that the father understands that we understand what it is we've done. And when we realize our errors in life and it compels us, it convicts us, it charges us, it challenges us to get things right, we have to vocalize our errors more so for ourselves. Because God already knows, he sees everything. Confession is more for us and less for him. It is more of an opportunity for us to take what we perceive is hidden and get it out of the way so that we can walk in the light of truth. You ever been keeping something from somebody and you don't know that they already know, but they already know. And so they can tell that you're acting kind of weird. And they just waiting on you to be able to acknowledge what everybody already knows. So that y'all can move forward. That's how it is in our relationship with God. There is nothing that we've said, nothing that we've done, nothing that we've thought that God doesn't already know. We're just the ones walking around like God don't know. And so we won't talk to him because we feel bad about what we did. And we feel like not talking to him is going to keep us from having to address what happened. But God already knows and he's waiting on us to stop being slow and just go ahead and talk about it so we can get it out of the way and be able to move on with the relationship. Because what confession does is it allows us to come back together in agreement about where we are in the truth of this relationship. And without confession, we cannot walk in agreement. I can't assume that you know what it is that I did that hurt you. 
And you can't assume that I know what I did that hurt you. We got to come into agreement and be able to line up in the same places so that we can then figure out how to move forward. And so it's important for the son to open his mouth and to verbalize what it is he knows led to the separation of his relationship with his father. That is the purpose, that is the function of guilt and remorse and humiliation and shame and conviction in our lives. But we got to be careful because those are all tools and not destinations. They are tools to support us, to help motivate us to do what's necessary to restore the relationship. There's no different than pain in your body. Pain in your body doesn't exist just so that you can hurt. Pain exists to help bring attention to an area of your body that needs attention so that necessary healing and support can be given to it so that you can be restored. It's the same thing in relationships. When we experience guilt and when we experience remorse and when we experience shame and humiliation and that conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, it is not so that we will sit in it feeling bad about what we've done and how we failed and how imperfect we are and how broken we are and sit and have pity parties, that's not the purpose of the tool. The tools are given to us that we might be able to take that conviction and allow it to compel us to do the things that are necessary to find reconciliation. But the greatest tool and the greatest trick of the enemy is to have you to sit in the guilt to have you to sit in the shame, to have you to sit in the conviction and allow it to turn into condemnation. Condemnation is the point at which we know we take the authority and the power from someone else to judge us and we judge ourselves. And since we cannot fully forgive us for the, the, uh, the transgression, then we would always be walking under the weight of the conviction. But scripture is very clear about condemnation in the life of a believer. We'll get to that in just a moment. But understand there has to be agreement for us to move forward. The son's declarative statement helps us to agree that the son was wrong, not just to his father, but also to God. But then the father's actions in return also help to bring some agreement and alignment. Because what the father does in response to the son's return helps everybody to get on the same page that the father never stopped loving him and never stopped looking for him. And here's the thing you got to understand. When you are willing to be brutally honest with yourself and with God about who you are and about how you fall in short, what you will realize is that God never stopped loving you. Not only did he never stop loving you, but he never stopped looking for you. Because even while you were a long way off, he saw you and had compassion on you and came running to you to embrace you and to kiss you and to welcome you back home. But interestingly enough, one of the most challenging aspects of all of this 
is oftentimes acceptance. In verse 22, the scripture says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Father doesn't have a problem accepting the son because the father understands. son was in the middle of his statement of repentance and you remember before he gets back he says I'm gonna go back to my father and say father I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son hire me as one of his servants in your household but notice when he gets back and he comes into contact with his father and he starts his speech the father cuts him off and doesn't allow him to finish his prepared speech. The son was going to request the opportunity to return as a, as a servant, but the father embraces him and calls him son. Now remember, Jesus is having this conversation. He's sharing this parable with Jews. And in this moment, Jesus draws a contrast between religion and relationship. A servant is someone who's engaged in supportive actions in proximity to the father. That means that the things that they do are helping to administrate the house and the proper functioning and working of the father, but they're not actually in relationship with the father. They're just close to him. They're just near him in proximity. But a son or a daughter is engaged in supportive actions in partnership with the father. There's relationship there. There's vested interest there. There's mutual support and service there in relationship. And Jesus is communicating to them that the father didn't just want them back as servants. He didn't want them back just going through the motions of religion. He didn't want them back just checking the boxes each and every day to say that I'm close to God. He doesn't want them back as servants in his household. He wants them back as sons, as daughters, as children with relationship, with rights. Not just going through the motions, but actually living in Restored relationship, not just as servants who are proficient in religious practices, but void of relationship. And we got to be careful in how we connect with God that we don't do so through a religious lens. Where we view our connection through this list of things that we need to do in order to make God happy so he won't be mad at us. Acknowledging our faults and our errors and our limitations and how we have offended God 
the reconciliation of that and the restoration of that is more than just coming to church, more than just reading your Bible, more than just saying a couple of prayers a couple of times a day. It's more than just the religiosity associated with what we come together and what we do as a church. God desires a relationship with you. He desires for you to know him intimately and for you to realize that he knows every hair on your head. He doesn't just want to be this person that you beg for help every time you get in trouble, but he wants to be the person that you talk to every day, whether something serious is going on or not. He doesn't want you walking around afraid to be honest and transparent with him because you're afraid of being punished by him. But he wants you to understand that his love and his grace is such that you can talk to him about everything that's going on with you because he already knows about it anyway. And when you pour it out to him, you make room for him to pour back into you. He don't want people to just check the box and then clock out. He wants people that he can have a relationship with. That's his desire. Sons and daughters as a part of a restored relationship. In John chapter 15, verses 12 through 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus wants relationship with us, not just our religious practice not just a routine of checking boxes. He wants you to know him and his thoughts and his ways and his desires for your life and his desires for your home, for your family, for your community, so that you can understand why you were created to be a significant contributor to helping to make the world a better place every single day. Not just checking some boxes so you can eventually get to heaven. No, God wants a relationship with you so you can understand how valuable you are to changing the world right now. You have been accepted by the Father. Question is, can you accept the Father's forgiveness? When we acknowledge our error, when we acknowledge our brokenness, when we acknowledge our imperfection, when we acknowledge our wrong, when we are able to acknowledge our sin and come into agreement with God's standards, call it by the same thing that he calls it, when we're able to do that, we open ourselves to receive forgiveness, thank God, because of Jesus Christ. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means that when we are able to find the words to acknowledge and communicate our error and our fault and how separated and far we are from God's standards and expectations, when we are able to find the language and seek his forgiveness, 
Because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, God is able to cover our sin with his blood. Sacrifice has been made. The balance has been paid. Too often we still walk around like we ain't got no credit. Think about your credit card balances right now. For those of you that have credit cards in the room, this is not an, an endorsement or to the contrary of credit card usage. This is just an example. But think about your, the balances that you have on your cards right now. Now think about how the kind of financial decisions you make because of the balance on your credit card right now. If you got a $12,000 limit and you've already used $11,995 on it, it ain't much you can do. But if you had a $12,000 card with a zero balance, is there some stuff that you could do? Absolutely. We live our lives as if our $12,000 limit has already been maxed out and Jesus hasn't paid the balance. And so the things that we could be using our salvation card for, we don't use because we're still allowing the debts of our past to limit our ability to charge it to the cross. God has forgiven us, but we haven't forgiven ourselves. And so although... We are now seen in the eyes of Jesus as righteous, in the eyes of the Father as righteous. We still walk and see ourselves as broken, imperfect sinners that don't have the capacity to live up to the standards and expectations of God because we deny the power of his spirit in our lives. Because we know how ratchet we used to be. We know how we messed up. We know the impacts and the effects of what we did and how it's still affecting people's lives today. And we still feel bad about those things. But at some point in our lives, we have to be able to not only be brutally honest with ourselves and engage in the actions that are going to lead us to restored relationship and be willing to get to the point of agreement with God's standards and expectations and where we really are in our relationship. But when we really are in agreement about who we are and about who our God is, then it demands that we accept the truth that we are saved and no longer condemned. It demands that we accept the truth that we are no longer who we used to be. It demands that we accept the truth that with the spirit of God dwelling in us, all of those things that are impossible for us in our own power are possible with God. This is what the scripture says in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also we may also be glorified by him. There was a lot of really great words. To sum it up for you. If you have. Like the son in the story, acknowledge your error and turned away from that life and turned to the father. And sought to be restored back to relationship in the father's house. You have accepted Jesus Christ. And the free gift of salvation that he made available by the cross. Then the spirit of God dwells in you. And if the spirit of God dwells in you, then it is your assurance that you are no longer a servant or a slave. But that you are a son or a daughter, you are a child of God. And if you're a child of God, then you got to accept the fact that your father's greatest priority for you is your relationship with him. I mean, literally everything that we read about in this book is for the purposes of God being able to be in relationship with you again. For you to know that there's nowhere you could go where he doesn't have your back. And for you to know that there's nothing you could do that he wouldn't forgive you for. That the shame and the guilt that you live under is not supposed to be perpetual. It's not supposed to last forever. It's supposed to motivate you to do what's necessary to clear up the connection and the relationship with your father. And the blessing that we have 
is that we have a benevolent father. A father that gives us forgiveness even when we don't feel like we deserve it. A father that is patient with us even when we struggle and are impatient with ourselves. Father that is gracious to us when we don't give ourselves or anybody else any grace. A father that is merciful to us, that sees us for who we really are and gives us the space to be able to make the mistake and learn the lesson. He really is a good father. So good, you got to say it twice. Good, good father. And this week, the challenge for you and I is to really reflect on how good he is to us. I mean, to really reflect on how good he is to us. In light of being brutally honest with ourselves and being able to see us for who we are, all of the cracks, all the imperfections, all the brokenness, all the bitterness, all the unforgiveness, all the intentional error, all of that. And he still loves us. So much so that even in our mess, he is willing to embrace us if we are willing to look to him. That even when we've done so much bad that we would disqualify ourselves as children of God, that he still calls us sons and daughters. It's difficult to appreciate sometimes because it's so different from the way that we treat each other. But that's why he's God and we're not. And I hope that this week, whatever he does, whatever happens in your life this week, I hope that by the time we come back together next week, you will have a different level of appreciation for how much God loves you. That some dot will connect, some light bulb will go on, something that hasn't made sense before will make sense, but I pray that when we come back together next week, you will have a clear understanding of just how much God loves you and the lengths that he is willing to go to love on you even more. And when you realize that, I pray that you start living your life like you're lovable. That you will value yourself the way that he values you. 
and realize that nothing is for waste. Your time isn't for waste. The stuff that you've been through isn't for waste, but God wants to use it all to make a difference in your life and in the people's lives around you. But before you start worrying about them, put your own mask on first and let God love on you this week. Let him shine the light on your heart. Let him listen to all of your complaining and all of your frustrations. Tell him about all your brokenness. And just let him love on you this week. He don't care about what you smell like. He don't care about what you look like. He don't care about where you've been. He just cares that you want to be with him. Because he wants to be with you too. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience with us. And thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for this particular story that reminds us of how great the Father's love is for us. And yes, we have the freedom to choose our own way, but we have to deal with the consequences of that. And that we also have the opportunity to choose to turn away from our way and choose your way. Thank you for a love that covers all of our faults and meets each and every one of our needs. I pray, God, this week that we would find the capacity to stop blocking your love. that we would open ourselves to being embraced by you no matter what condition we're in. No matter how far we may be from your house, as long as our eyes are on you, help us to embrace the reality and the truth that you want to meet us where we are. And in the moments when we feel unlovable, it's exactly the moments when you want to demonstrate your love for us. Thank you for being a great father and for the blessing of having relationship with you. Help us to understand what that really means this week. Spirit, connect the dots in our hearts and in our minds so that change can manifest in our actions. We love you, God, and we thank you for loving us. Be with us, bless us during our time of reflection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.